I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am your amateur Marxist economist this week. And I'm Matt Bernico, just the guy buying up all your commodities. <laughs> um, I am extremely qualified. I've been listening to hours and hours of David Harvey podcasts while I do the dishes in this quarantine. Um, you might say I'm just extremely good at geography now. <laughs> you know where all of the cities are, all of the states. Yeah, I don't know where all the states are on a map, but like I know where they are in relation to capital. Right. They're written on your heart. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, this week on the Magnificast, all of this will be put to just great use because we are taking a look at the world around us and making a desperate plea to just please be a real life socialist. Uh, wouldn't you know it? Uh, <laughs> we're doing it again. We're making the appeal once more, the altar call to Marxist socialism. Uh, low wage workers are having to choose between their health and their family's health uh, and a paycheck that's going on right now. Um, the U.S. is launching some coups in South America, uh, as usual again, and we're getting close to the first ever single person owning $1 trillion, uh, Jeff Bezos himself. Uh, at the moment, like things Jeff are... Butzos. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly, more like Jeff Butzos. Um, at the moment, things are super bleak, uh, but some find some ways around actually dealing with politics, let alone socialism at all, which seems difficult, but um, I can imagine it just probably 10 years ago in my own life. Uh, so this week, we are going to take a look at the rhetorical strategies that certain liberal Christians use to get around the pressing political realities. Uh, it's kind of a follow up to what we talked about last week. Um, and we've done a little bit of this on the show in the past. But I think that it's always helpful to just kind of review some basics when it comes to Marxism. And that's what we're going to do this time around. Yeah. So um, a few months back, you may remember, we did an arc of episodes on evangelicalism. And one of them, we paid some special attention to like progressive evangelicalism or liberal evangelicalism or I don't know, however you want to parse that out. Um, we ended up talking about Jim Wallace and Brian Zond a little bit. And I think we said some things about Shane Claiborne as well, um, even though he's a little bit, a little bit different than the other two. But uh, <laughs> in that episode, um, yeah, we talked about how these more progressive -y types of um, evangelical Christians try to construct like a type of third way politics that on the one hand, you know, uh, uh, give lip service to social justice -y kinds of Christianity, but really lack um, actual political substance, right? Um, you know, you should care about the poor, they might say, but like, 
don't <laughs> throw a brick through anyone's window. Um, <laughs> don't have a major political revolution. Don't push for even minor reforms, right? Um, that's kind of what we're up against, I think, with some of these uh, like liberal Christian types. Which, to be fair, uh, you, you, you shouldn't just throw a brick through a window, um, but you should know why you should or shouldn't. <laughs> that's right. You should have a really uh, solid. I mean, if you're going to throw a brick through a window, you should have a really solid reason. And that reason should yeah. be the overthrow of capital. Um, exactly. But, you know, <laughs> don't, don't just do it because you feel like it, I guess. <laughs> Listen, I'm not here to tell you what you do. It's the, the Marxist reply to anarchism uh, once again. Sorry to report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is right. Well, um, in that episode that we were just talking about, one of the examples that we came up to was Brian Zahn's position of being neither right or left and just being a Jesus guy. And um, <laughs> since since we're kind of kind of riff on some of these ideas again and talk about maybe the larger like rhetorical structure of like what's going on there, I thought we could kind of revisit Brian Zahn's position um, and, uh, that'll, that'll kind of like set the tone for the rest of the conversation we'll have. So, um, whether you like it or not, here's Brian Zond. Um, <laughs> okay. Brian says they could only see us versus them. Republicans versus Democrats, elephants versus donkeys. They were incredulous about my claim to only be interested in following the lamb. Yes, I learned the hard way that if the kingdom of Christ is not perceived as a viable alternative society, then competition for conventional political power seems the only option for influencing the world. So Zahn's rhetoric here is like representative of a pretty uh, common way that I think like progressive types of evangelicals think and talk about uh, politics or or avoid talking about politics, maybe more precisely. It's like a really attractive kind of thing because saying both sides are wrong and that Jesus is right just like appeals deeply to that evangelical desire for a pure theology and a pure politics, right? You're not going to get your hands dirty with like having to be, you know, behind a certain type of legislation or behind a big social movement. You don't have to worry about those types of things. Um, but the problem is that like disavowing the left and the right <laughs> leaves you in a place that <laughs> is not only like above politics, but also pushes you to like disavow political struggle altogether. Um, it, it creates a kind of like shell for you to live in in sort of like a weird prefigurative way, but not even in like a radical prefigurative way, <laughs> just like a <laughs> just a, you know, I'm going to go to church and not do anything kind of way. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pulling out. Some of these people have like more or less or better or worse uh, activist dimensions to their faith. Right. Like like Jim Wallace. I don't know. He's a, a typical liberal and like all typical liberals. Um Sometimes he's got a good idea or is like on the right path or he, you know, gets something right. But other times kind of misidentifies the problem. Um, Brian Zond is maybe a unique case, not in terms of the discourse, but just in terms of how this all cashes out, because I couldn't tell you what Brian Zond does or doesn't support. Maybe just that was my own fault because I don't follow him really. But um, it's not uh, obvious. What is obvious is that, like Matt, you were just saying, um, Jesus provides the grounds to kind of think that you're outside of the the political fray and then that gets painted as the radical position or or more right. radical than the radicals right um and of course the the reality underneath that aesthetic uh you know the truth behind the art if you will is that um capitalism doesn't really care <laughs> if you <laughs> yeah uh do or don't go to church um so i think it's important to say here that uh to lay this out, to suggest what we're going to suggest, which is that Christians should be Marxists and that Marxism is a, a specific way of thinking about politics and economics, et cetera, that Christians should get into. 
Um, it's not just a matter of being like, oh, this is right. And those liberal Christians, they're dumb. <laughs> That's not, <laughs> I, I think maybe sometimes our, our tone lends itself to that, which is too bad. It's a character flaw, I think, in myself. But uh, nevertheless, the real point is that uh, if you want to be a Christian who really does care about why people are poor or impoverished or why there's poverty or uh, wealth disparities, etc., the kind of rhetoric that says Jesus is above the fray isn't going to help you solve that problem. Um, you might be able to feed a lot of mouths at a soup kitchen, which is very good and important. Um, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be able, you, you don't have the tools available to you to sort of parse out why that is. It's not just because people sin or because, you know, there are some uh, egoistic people in the White House or something. Uh Maybe that's part of it. But at the end of the day, what's really going on here are some material practices and processes that you can actually point to and identify. And Marxism is a way of doing that. It's a, a set of anal analytical tools or stories that help us understand what's going on. That's what we're doing in this episode. We're going to try to like dig into this trope in Christian writing that tries to develop a Christian politics that opts for. I'm just going to be I'm just going to be uh I'll go for the character flaw, um, <laughs> the character <laughs> flaw here. Uh, you know, people who are trying to develop Christian politics that opts for Christian-y platitudes over actual politics. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you can find this kind of stuff all over. We pulled out uh, a few examples, um, one that's um, kind of a piece of popular writing and one that's more academic-y. But I think the, the same sort of, like, rhetorical trope is present in both. That it'll be kind of interesting. Um so yeah, we'll outline some of some of those articles, and then we'll turn to um, why Marxism is actually a helpful tool for Christians uh, to think about politics. So the first article we're going to talk about is an article I was tweeting about the other day. It is um, it was written in kind of a weird place, um, ABC's religion and ethics sort of section of their website. The Australian um, one, not the uh, American one. <laughs> that's right. This is the down under one. <laughs> um, I don't know exactly why that is the case, but. It's the case. Um, anyways, the article is called Must Christians Be Anti-Capitalists? If so, how? Um, so first of all, with a title like that, you know it's an article I'm going to read. Um, but the other thing <laughs> is that it's written by two people who I know and like for the most part. And uh, um, and uh, yeah, so it's people I know and I'm going to definitely read it. Unfortunately, I think that they've got it all wrong here. And I want to say how. Okay. So the article itself is like... Um, pretty analytic when it comes to its philosophical style. Um, and when I say pretty, I mean extremely like you'll find like <laughs> arguments labeled and um, it can be kind of tricky to read if you're not really used to reading that type of thing. Um, but basically, they do make this whole big case um, about, you know, whether Christians should or shouldn't be anti-capitalists. And I don't know. Fair enough. Um, they they kind of come to a conclusion that like, yeah, they should. They should be anti-capitalists, um, but in a really specific way. And um, first of all, I think it's cool. Like we do like we agree that like Christians should be anti-capitalists for sure, which is, I think, more than can be said than for some other folks on the sort of progressive Christian end who, you know, wouldn't even go that far. But uh, the part that I think is really troubling, or at least um, it kind of obfuscates what anti-capitalism might mean or do, or like how it could help us in society, is a section that's titled "Witnessing to a Different Economy." Uh, so I think that the last the last section here um, is important because it basically tells you, well, kind of confusingly, why they reject more like revolutionary or even reformist positions and what they opt for instead. So um, 
the the entire article it does spend some time talking about revolution but not really why it's undesirable or it doesn't really does it just you know it kind of just says that it is it gestures that it is undesirable um and that's not great <laughs> as an article but um <laughs> the end is kind of the most interesting point because it kind of tells you what they want to do instead and i think it's um yeah i don't know very confusing. So, um, yeah, I'll just read this kind of introductory paragraph to the conclusion and we can kind of draw out what's going on here. So they say this, uh, we propose the following four economic postures to mitigate against the sinister power of contemporary neoliberal capitalism, a capitalism whose animating features are captured in the descriptions above. Our idea is that these postures adhere to the teachings of Jesus, participate in God's shalom, and take sin seriously without requiring uh, economic revolution. Uh, God Shalom is a thing they talked about earlier in the uh, article. Um, anyways, so um, they think that they've they've isolated or located a handful of um, things or like political ideas in Jesus that um, can help us through dealing with capitalism. I guess the the first kind of complicated part here is like, who are they prescribing these to? <laughs> like just individual people or churches or all Christians, it's, um, I'm not exactly sure, but either way, um, with, with that question up in the air, you already have considerable political problems. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so the, the ideas that they think, um, are really important to, um, mitigating against capitalism's sinister power are first sharing in a way appropriate to you and your community. Um, so you should share the things that you have. Okay. Number two is treat money as a tool, not a treasure. Um, so this is good, right? You don't want to um, you don't want to uh, worship Mammon. You want to worship God instead. Um, they have a few like um, biblical sort of references here that kind of give um, support to this idea. I'm not going to bother with their biblical support because, like, I think. If you listen to this podcast for a bit, it's pretty clear. Or if you know, uh, just crack open the Bible yourself, and these ideas kind of come out of the Gospels. I think in some different ways. Um, the third one is give sacrificially, um, and then finally serve God, not wealth. Um, it says, "Don't fool yourself that wealth isn't a threat to holiness. You can't serve God and wealth." Jesus says, "That's true. I I agree with that." Uh, and in light of these like sort of practices they offer up this different alternative, the economy of God's kingdom. Um, I'm going to read one little bit of a longer piece here, and then we can kind of talk about what's going on here, Dean. So bear mm -hmm. with me if you're tired of hearing me mm -hmm. talk. Um, yeah, <laughs> the economy of God's kingdom. Our discussion of the various capitalisms and common anti-capitalist arguments has aimed to present a picture of modern American capitalism and some Christian concerns in the face of it. We are convinced Christians must critically engage conventional ways of commerce, consumption, and participation in our current economy, but admit we are not sufficiently gripped by movements of reform or revolution. Neither is, neither reform or revolution is a is a rough spot to be in. Um, yeah, yikes. <laughs> our hope is that by practicing the above-mentioned Christian postures, we participate in and witness to an economy that challenges capitalism and any other economy not shaped by the way of Jesus. We suspect faithfulness may not be the overthrow of the system. I don't know why you think that. Uh, the goal and gift of those postures is that by embodying them and others, our list is not comprehensive. We That's a good way to hedge your bet as an academic, by the way. Um, <laughs> we may become a people whose life together displays God's shalom as we love our neighbors as well. I think that when you read this, um, it is actually really hard to be like, 
to find well, okay when you read this and you're not like a, a hard marxist or whatever it's hard to find like a lot of things to disagree with because like it kind of sounds nice right like people should serve god not wealth you should give sacrificially you should treat money as a tool not like as the main thing in your life you should learn how to share with people and all those things sound really nice um but i think the part that makes me like feel so weird i mean it's first of all like who are you telling to do these things to how are you telling them to do them but how exactly they are a challenge to capitalism is a huge question I have because people are already doing these things and I haven't seen capitalism challenged not even once, um, <laughs> not by them at least. So I, I don't know. I, I guess um, I, I think that this kind of fits into the larger rhetorical trope, though, that we were talking about earlier, right? This is a way to really like talk about Christianity and politics in a way that I mean, on the surface, sounds faithful, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really tell you anything about politics. It doesn't tell you anything about, you know, how how much should people be paid <laughs> minimum, right? Like, who should own the means of production? I, I don't know. Um, does sharing, uh, in their view, mean, like, um, sharing Jeff Bezos' wealth? I, I don't know. And the troubling thing of writing with this particular like rhetorical mode is that like the point is to not tell you it seems um mm -hmm. you know the vagueness is part of it um because if you were to then you would then you wouldn't be doing the economy of god's kingdom anymore and you'd be doing politics as such so i guess what's troubling in this way of speaking is that like in trying to talk about being faithful what you do is set up a way to make sure you never do politics and that is bad Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's all we lay out. Um, uh, of course, I agree 100%. You're right about everything, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but <laughs> one thing that I think is uh, kind of strange is in that conclusion, the idea is that, right, they, they, they're critical of capitalism insofar as it's an economy that isn't shaped by what they call the way of Jesus, um, which true, like you say. But what would such an economy be is not clear. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, like, you know, sharing in a way that's appropriate to a community, treating money as a tool, all these kinds of things, those aren't economies. Those are things that you can do within an economy, uh, but you can obviously also do them better or worse in certain economies. Uh, some economies lend better to serving God and not wealth than others, for instance. Um, you know, all of these kinds of questions are left totally un unanswered or even unraised. Uh, and I think that question that you ask about uh, to whom are these uh, things directed is the right one, right? Because if you're just talking to Christians, uh, well, at the end of the day, um, Christians are not going to create an alternative economy. Uh, and certainly they're not going to create an alternative economy that really challenges capitalism in a meaningful way. They might be able to create an economy that guards your soul in such a way that you feel sort of um, removed, you know, like you can think of maybe certain uh, experiments in Christian commune living or, um, I don't know, it's bad to idealize things like Amish life for certain Mennonite communities. but Or even like intentional communities, right? Like that's right. like a, a similar sort of vibe. Right. Um, and sure, like it's true that that insulates you in some ways from certain complicities. But 
uh, what you've basically done is retreated. Uh, you, you've left, you know, the mountains of injustice that occur in the world totally unscathed. Um, and capitalism doesn't mind if you retreat. <laughs> it will it will always find a way to bring you back in anyway, uh, somehow. So I think that is especially the problem with these kinds of things. By presuming that there is an economy that is based on the way of Jesus and never articulating what kind of economies might seem more or less uh, related to that kind of um, Christian way of life, whatever you think it might be, uh, you end up inadvertently sort of endorsing the way that things already are. Uh, they're all incidentally bad, so there's no point in really thinking that hard about them. Yeah, it seems that way. Um, man, the part that really does irk me too is that it, it, neither reform or revolution is like... Mm -hmm. like I, I don't know that almost it just seems like um, huh. I don't want to say nihilism because like clearly there are values, but mm -hmm. like it, it's certain that like you don't want to be bothered with larger political questions. Uh, mm -hmm. It's bizarre because like, you know, they they do they do go out of their way to say things about capitalism and how it's bad. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And if you can see those things, if you have that type, that type of critical perspective of understanding that, like, there are things within capitalism that aren't good for people to live, then like, why wouldn't you try to do anything right? Like to be against, mm -hmm. uh, to, to not be gripped by movements of reform or revolution and to do nothing is like it, to do nothing, but like to do this other God's economy of God's kingdom is just like, uh, I, I don't know. It seems like just, uh, I guess capitalism won't care is all I'm trying to say is that, you know, you can yeah. do this, but it, it won't make a difference to capitalism. And in, and in turn, it, it won't make a difference to people who work really low wage jobs. It won't make a difference to black communities who are plagued by um, environmental racism. It won't make any difference to people who are in prison and who like, you know, might not ever get out unless like significant reform movements or revolutionary movements succeed. Um, so I don't know, like, I guess if you aren't gripped by those movements, um, uh, I would suggest reconsidering everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Right. And that just that, uh, that sort of final line of not suspecting or being suspecting that faithfulness may not be the overthrow of the system. It's just hard to swallow. Right. Because it's like, well, surely I, I don't understand how, if you think about supply chains, right the way that commodities get to us, the way that our food is produced and gets to us, all that kind of thing. Uh, surely you could never be faithful to Jesus Christ if in, in any, you know, kind of meaningful sense, if you don't disrupt those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like eating a banana that relies on like the brutal exploitation and literal murder of like farmers in Colombia, uh, that cannot be a Christian practice, <laughs> or at least like if it is, it's an evil Christian practice. It's a Christianity that I think should be destroyed. Right. Uh, and in, in any case, uh, that, that idea about faithfulness is a, a strange kind of, um, thing to bring up, uh, if you want to talk about living in capitalism. Yeah. I imagine like the response to this might just be that like, well, Christians should like, you know, have this whole other type of way of living in response, but like how, <laughs> you know, like, I think the other part of this, too, is that um, you can say this is neither reform or revolution, but but say, say, like, through some kind of, like, magical thing that happens, right? Christians all of a sudden were like, yes, I'm convicted by this thing, particularly, I will be an anti-capitalist, and I will share with my community, and I will use money as a tool, and all of these things, right? And, like, how will they, how will those Christians, like, 
gain the political power to accomplish these goals even you know even amongst their own communities mm -hmm. or or why would they even like um especially since so many christians are like um willfully against doing them i i don't know it's just like uh it seems like a lot of wishful thinking too when it comes to the like the sort of christian virtues that uh yeah espoused here yeah, um, I think that's also a problem with something like Christian supremacy uh, that happens mm. here. But I think that an easier way to talk about it will actually be to bring in this other article and that will move us along so we can get to uh, our real Lord and Savior, Karl Marx. Um, <laughs> the title of this uh, essay that we're going to talk about is called Only Jesus Saves Toward a Theopolitical Ontology of Judgment. A lot of words in there that don't you don't have to worry about them. <laughs> um, but it's by a guy named Daniel M. Bell Jr. And it's in an extremely 2005 book called Theology and the Political. Don't get it. Like, don't bother getting the book. Um, it's one that I have because I went to a weird school. But um, anyway, uh, the essay is good insofar as it actually crystallizes this very bad opinion. <laughs> um, and I'm going to read a paragraph from it that will help us draw some out. So uh, Bell writes this. Um, I should say this this paragraph is is the end of like a long discussion of the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze and desire and all that kind of stuff. Again, don't worry about all that. Um, but anyway, for your interest. Um, OK, Bell says this. The only way to defeat capitalism is to embrace the gift given in Christ, which is nothing less than the superabundance of grace that repositions our lives with the, within the an economic order of love. So repositioned, redeemed by love. We are enabled to give ourselves to enact true sacrifices without loss or end, even in the face of an economy that would eclipse gift and plenitude through the imposition of a regime of scarcity, debt, and dominion. Christ's sacrifice defeats capitalism as that sacrifice, and every true sacrifice that flows from it opens a way for desire to be healed of its economic distortions and renewed in the mode of donation of perpetual generosity. Capitalism is overcome as human relations are redeemed from the agony of competition and dominion and revived as the joyous conviviality of love that is the fruit of the proliferation of non-proprietary, that is, participatory relations. Capitalism is defeated as fear is cast out, the fear of my neighbor that compels me to possess more tightly and acquire more compulsively, the fear that in giving I can only lose, the fear that death and the cross is the end of every sacrifice." And uh, in light of all these kind of conceptual changes or different ways we can understand our, ourselves and what Christ does, etc., uh, Bell goes on to propose uh, the works of mercy, which is a, a tradition in the Catholic Church um, in particular, but it, it shows up elsewhere, uh, that enumerates several different things like almsgiving, and, and there's a bunch of them, different works of mercy. But those are what Bell says are the sort of tangible forms of combating capitalism because they... Uh, kind of naturally flow out of these um, maybe theological ideas or, or theological effects, however strongly you want to put it. Um, I bring this up, this particular article, A, because it, it crystallizes, like I said, this, this point that's really common, which is that uh, the story of Jesus and Christianity and also the actual work that Jesus does in dying on the cross is supposed to be the thing that ultimately saves us from capitalism at the end. Uh, that's the claim that Bell is making. Uh, it might not seem that way. Maybe it doesn't look that way, but d make no mistake, that's what happened. That's how it is. That's Bell's argument. Um, it's this really kind of strong, almost fideistic claim, right? That uh, it's the, <laughs> you could say it's like the name it and claim it version of academic theology, right? <laughs> um, you, you say that it exists and therefore it does and you go out and get it. Um, I think that what's dangerous about this is 
it's very similar to everything we just said, right? It distracts you from politics. It posits uh, Jesus Christ as this kind of thing that, that really super, super sends or transcends politics. Uh, it's maybe like a more sophisticated version of Brian Zond in many respects. Um, but the other thing that I think is really dangerous about it is that it reinscribes this Christian hegemony, uh, Christian supremacism, right? The only way to defeat capitalism is to be a Christian. Uh, there's no Muslim way of defeating capitalism, for instance, right? There's there's no way to be a good Jew and hate capitalism. These, these are all things that are precluded unless you kind of accidentally stumble your way into like the mode of Christianity or something. Mm. Uh, but but that's a dangerous thing to say, right? That, that ends up being a supersessionist claim in itself. Um, and I think, so not only are there political dangers here, but there are real uh, theological violences that get reinscribed in these kinds of proposals. Uh, I take it these are often opaque to these authors, but sometimes they're not. You know, people like John Milbank will just own that, uh, that yes, it's it's a Christian supremacist uh, narrative. And why shouldn't it be? Because Christianity is, is simply right. And therefore, capitalism is bad and Christianity is the way to get rid of it. Um, mm-hmm. Woefully naive. Also, uh, <laughs> Slava Zizek, for all his faults, once described Milbank's vision as a soft fascist vision in the book uh, Monstrosity of Christ, which is like the only quote I remember in that entire book, um, <laughs> because it is true. So anyway, I just pulled that out as one other example of uh, maybe like a high academic level of making this uh, very basic sort of point, but one that's nevertheless very pervasive. Yeah, I think that's um, it's a helpful thing. We got we got both ends of the spectrum here. We got this analytical piece. We got this weird continental thing going on here, <laughs> and they both have some considerable problems, just like we've said. I mean, just like, OK, I always want to give people, especially people that I know, the benefit of the doubt and like. um. You know, I think as like barring the weird thoughts about reform and revolution um, and some of the willful thinking or the wishful thinking there, um, you know, as a person, like as a way to comport yourself in the world personally, I think some of these ideas are fine, but like they don't they don't have a politics to them. And I think unless you kind of deal with the political end of things outright, you're going to end up doing more harm than good to yourself. Yeah, I think that's right. There is a. A danger to your soul in the attempt to save it uh, in this paradoxical way. I think that's true. Um, <laughs> I Maybe this is a good way. We don't have to spend too much time on this Bell article. I mean, uh, we've probably said enough uh, that sort of just crosses with the other essay as well. Um, but in turning to Marxism specifically, I think that this might be a good time to say there are actually two um, uses for Marxism for Christians. One is what we introduced the episode with. Uh, namely, it's a, a way of analyzing the world around you. It provides these tools. If you can get a good handle on those tools, you can understand what's really happening and, and you can intervene. You know, you could do something about it in a meaningful way. Um, the other, though, I think is that Marxism actually does encourage you to chasten a certain Christian naivete that can become even worse than naivete, can become a dangerous supremacism, mm-hmm. right? Because once you understand how capitalism works, you can't say bizarre things like only becoming a Christian will save you from capitalism. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to, you might say that being a Christian might help you do that or something or, you know, whatever. However else you want to add on to that, that's fine. But um, you're going to have to start talking about a lot of other things like labor um, and capital before you ever get to that that side of it. Um, and frankly, I don't think that you should. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> a conversation for another time. But uh, maybe we should just turn to Marx. How does that sound? Can I just like force us there? Yeah, I think so. Let's. All right, I've seen the conversation. Yeah.
Um, all right, so we're gonna maybe we'll 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 break the second half of the episode into three pieces. So one is gonna be basically uh, what is capitalism in a Marxist framework and how does it work or how does capital flow, let's say, in that system. Uh, the second will be what is labor power, which is kind of the the like bottom side response to that. So if capital works a certain way, then labor also works in a certain way. Uh, and then lastly, we'll talk about what those two things, if you understand that, um, what they can help you do or what they can give you um, in terms of parameters for deciding what to do about it. Um, so maybe, uh, Matt, I'll just introduce a few themes uh, on capital and we can uh, go forward. So uh, first of all, Marx spent a lot of time thinking through how capital works. Uh, there's lots of things Marx contributes, um, but this is both the probably most boring stuff to read, but also the most important. Um, it's the stuff that all Marxists like to make jokes about. You get to learn how much linen costs in 18th century England. You can learn all about how to make coats. Uh, you can learn a lot if you read the book Capital about how commodities work, how money works, all that kind of stuff. It's very dry. Um, but it, again, it's it's extremely important. Uh, the biggest lesson, I think, from Marxism that is hard for us to get around, uh, get our heads around, is that capitalism isn't just a thing out in the world. It's not something you can point to and say, that's capitalism. You can't even point to one definition and say, this is how capitalism always is. Uh, David Harvey, who I mentioned earlier, I've been listening to a lot, uh, he likes to talk about uh, capitalism being value in motion which is to say uh, it's an economic system that's based on relationships. It's not a fixed thing. And you have to figure out how all those relationships work together. So when it comes to Christianity, I think why this makes a difference is uh, if you want to talk about the least of these, let's say, that becomes more than just religious language. You can figure out, first of all, who the least of these really is, who that, that refers to, but even more importantly, why they really are the least of these, right? People don't just show up and they're born into this category that Christianity valorizes. Uh, there's a way of kind of reading uh, Jesus' statements about caring for the poor as an indictment on a system that makes them poor. Uh, and that means we should figure out how that system operates. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. We can talk a little bit more about value in motion and like, what capitalism is and how capital works like it is complicated and i'm gonna glad you're gonna talk about that not me but i think that the, <laughs> the like the the reason this the reason that christians should care about this is like really important right like um if you're if you're like us one of these like social justice christian types that like like care about people and want to make the world better for them and um and call out all types of oppression when you see them you have to know how capitalism works um and why it's doing the things that it does and like what to expect from it. Right. Um, and, and just like, you know, we were kind of saying like, you can't just like hope to share with people in your community out of capitalism or something. Right. It's not going to work um, because mm -hmm. of these, like these um, larger like machinations of uh, the way capital functions within like this, like macroeconomic sense. So um, yeah, I don't know if you care about people and you want like, you know, just not just people in your community, but like everyone everywhere to be uh, to be <laughs> lifted out of like economic oppression, then this is an idea that you might find interesting. I hope so. I'm going to do my best to make it interesting. Um, all right. Uh, like Matt gestured toward, I'm going to take the capital side of this equation. Matt's going to take the labor side. Um, Matt, if you want to make a great joke, please feel free. Uh, you can lighten the mood. Um, but let me lead us through some of the boring ways that capital works, but also in a hopefully sort of simple way. 
Um, <laughs> I should start out maybe saying a little bit about why it's hard for Christians to understand this bit. I think it's because when Christians talk about capitalism, if they're willing to recognize that it's bad, what they are usually saying is not that capitalism is bad. They're saying that something like greed is bad, or they're mm -hmm. saying something like um, wealth inequality is bad. And that's true. Both of those things are bad. Uh, but those are not the sum total of capitalism, or they're not what capitalism amounts to. They're what capitalism enables. They're, they're the symptoms of how political economy in capitalism operates, uh, right? That, this is the, the driving basic thesis through the two essays we even just talked about. Um, the first one being uh, capitalism is basically a, a sort of series of you know, vices, and the, the key is to be virtuous. You want to trade those vices for virtue, and that'll sort it all out. Um, the second is uh, capitalism gives you a bunch of bad desires. Um, so if you just become a Christian, you'll have the right desires. And again, everything will fall in line, right? The trouble is that capitalism isn't those things. It, it involves those things, but it, there's more to it. So let me talk a little bit about how capital works in these specific ways that Marx talks about. And once again, I'm just going to point people to David Harvey. He's not the only person who talks about this. There's lots of good economists who popularize this stuff, but um, Harvey's just one of the best if you really want to dig into it. Um, all right, so borrowing a little bit from him and also from uh, Marx's book Capital, at least volume one, the only one I've read. <laughs> um, essentially, capitalism is about circulation, which means you can tell a story about how capital moves around. So here's the story that, that Marx tells. Um, there's a lot going on in the background, but this is the, the basics. Okay, first, let's say it's, it's a new day and uh, a capitalist really wants to, uh, to make some money to invest um, what happens? So a capitalist starts out with some money. How that capitalist got money can be a number of different ways, right? Maybe they inherited it. Maybe they've already had a bunch of successful ventures, so they've just got money. Maybe they went to the bank and got a loan. But however they got it, a capitalist has money. A capitalist takes that money into a market and buys commodities. That's what they need. Uh, so those commodities are things like the means of production. So by way of just creating an example, let's say this capitalist is going to become just a huge Bible mogul. They're going to print tons of Bibles, create a Bible <laughs> market. Uh, so one of the commodities in that market this capitalist is going to have to buy is a printing press for Bibles, right? And they'll have to buy paper and they'll have to pay for translators, all this kind of stuff. But a capitalist doesn't want to do all the work that you have to do to print a Bible themselves. So the capitalist has to buy labor, which is also a commodity, right? Okay, that's a very important piece of capitalism. You go into a market, you buy all kinds of tangible stuff, how to build actual physical things in the world, but you've also got to buy people's labor so that they can do it for you, right? And not everybody has money, so people are motivated to sell their labor. Okay. Let's move to the next phase of the story. The Bible factory starts pumping out Bibles, all right? The capitalists did successfully buy the press, bought all the materials, bought the labor. They've got a Bible factory, and it is just, uh, you know, cramming out every study Bible you can imagine. Um, these Bibles are new commodities that are produced with the power of the commodities the capitalists bought, right? Again, those commodities being just boring things like printing presses and labor, etc. cetera. Uh, those commodities, these new Bibles... Uh, go to a market where they can get sold for a profit. That profit then gets redistributed in a number of different ways. So workers get some of it as wages, right? They're entitled to a little bit of that profit. Uh, maybe the Bible factory has to pay a distributor to get the Bibles to the market in the first place. So that distributor gets some profit. Maybe the capitalist has to rent the land for the factory or pay interest on a loan that gave the money in the first place, right? There's lots of different ways that this, capital, that this profit has to get split. But at the end, after all that splitting, 
all the extra profit goes into the pocket of the capitalist as money, and that money can be put back into the market to buy commodities, to make new stuff, and the process starts all over again. All right, that's like a ton of words, but the process is pretty simple, right? A capitalist has money, they get commodities so that they can make commodities, they sell those new commodities, and then the money ends up going back into the process. I'm going to take a break there. Does that all make sense, Matt? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to unpack any of that? No, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's just the way it works in all of the uh, all of the big resource uh, management games that I've ever played. Um, that's how it works <laughs> in Civ right. Six. That's how it works in City Skylines. You gotta just you gotta get uh, the commodities. You gotta get labor power. And if your people, if the if the labor power you have, if those people, if they're not happy, it's gonna work slower. That's the thing about them in video games. <laughs> that's true uh you gotta spend money to make money as i say um i can tell you're already chomping in the bit to get to the labor question so let me fill out a little bit more <laughs> of this and i'll turn it right over to you um okay why does all this matter why does this story about capitalism matter well the first thing is you can already maybe see some of the contradictions involved and matt pointed to one right who gets to distribute the profit who gets to decide what something costs who gets to decide what wages are kind of reasonably um, paid in, in a factory or, or some other kind of workplace? Um, those kinds of questions all create these points of tension in that process of uh, capitalist production. So like Matt said, if laborers think they're not getting enough wages, if the, the profit's not coming back to them uh, and they feel that they can have a coordinated activity to, to stop that, to, to break that part of the labor or the capitalist process, then that's some leverage. Uh, if a capitalist has trouble buying up the means of production, that's a problem. Uh, if the capitalists can't get their commodities to market, that's a problem, right? There's all kinds of places in this story where things can go wrong, and that is a big problem for capitalists. But things get weirder when you start talking about how all these capitalists have to compete with each other to win in the market. So, uh, you know, here's our Bible capitalist. He's selling Bibles like hotcakes, but all of a sudden uh, there's a new uh, Bible maker in town and these two Bible makers are going to compete uh, to sell, to see who can sell the most Bibles, right? And that means they have to find ways of cutting costs anywhere that they can, right? Uh, and this is a fundamental feature of capitalism. Uh, capitalists have to compete with one another, and that competition forces all the rest of the pieces of those processes to become more complicated and also, again, to uh, uh, claw back all the profit that they can so they can continue to reinvest. So by the time you get to the level of, say, a national capitalist class, right, all the capitalist interests in the United States, let's say, at that level, you've got whole countries competing with other countries and exploiting poorer countries by making them do shitty labor for no money, right? This is the story of offshoring. Uh, you can move an automotive factory to Mexico because you know that you can pay Mexican workers much less money than you have to pay uh, unionized workers in Detroit, let's say. So, of course, you're going to do that. It gives you a competitive edge if you can convince the uh, the national power brokers and political leaders to let you do that, then you, you have to because it, it gives you the edge that you need. Um, what this means is if you can figure out the different points in these, uh, these systems, it leads you to lots of other questions about how do people get compelled to sell their labor? How do people make sure that they get what they need to pay things like rent and what they need to subsist? 
And that is how you get to, I think, the question of who are the least of these? How do they become that way? It's not just greed or uh, vice, although it is that, right? You you have to be a very greedy person to uh, become the, the biggest Bible magnate that you can. Um, but uh, you also have to do all these extremely uh, discernible, obvious uh, things. You have to you have to participate in these specific mechanisms or else uh, you're never going to get off the ground. All right. That's the capital side of the story. Um, maybe we could just pause for a minute and talk perhaps a bit more about how that helps us uh, think about capital as Christians. Right. I think it's I think it's really helpful to parse it out like that, too, because when you frame things as like, you know, just vices, right. Or greed or, or whatever. Um, it, it takes some of the like mechanistic qualities of the, of the system away. Like it makes it seem like, well, if, if the CEO or whoever of, you know, the CEO of, of big Bible company was just like nicer to his workers or something, it would be different and it wouldn't be so bad. But that's that's not the case, right? The whole the whole thing here, when when we map it out like this, we can see that like the, the whole point of this is to make one person richer, so he can compete and like win out inevitably with the the you know the other person in the market, and like by doing so, like he has to make his or hers want to be, <laughs> be right, you know, get it right here, uh, his or her em- employees. Um, it has to make them poorer um, because like you can't do anything but that. Right. That's the only way this works is if one person, um, if this, if one person can be more successful off of a bunch of other people who are becoming, you know, like less and less successful, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. Um, another kind of piece of this is that capital always has to expand, right? You can only make so much money because, uh, I don't know, let's say everybody gets a Bible and there's no more people who need them or something, you know, whatever. It's a bad example, but you can kind of understand <laughs> maybe what it, the principle I'm getting at. Um, it's a bad example because we'll always need more Bibles. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> what I mean is uh, there's a certain kind of threshold of profit where profit gets harder and harder uh, to make. And what that means is capitalists have to find new ways of making profit um, and that forces the system to grow and grow and grow until you have someone like Jeff Bezos, who's a trillionaire now, right? Why wasn't there a trillionaire 200 years ago? It's not because there wasn't a trillion dollars in the world. It's because the economy has grown. There are there are more dollars, uh, more and more every year. Uh, and there has to be more dollars all the time or else the system will will collapse on itself. Um, that That creates problems for capitalists, but it also creates problems for the poor, especially because... Um, when uh, a country needs to expand uh, because the the bourgeois class, the capitalist class there is is having problems, um, one really easy way to do that is go invade another one. <laughs> go find some other people who uh, you can maybe capture as a captive market and you can sell all kinds of things there or you can capture as a, a way to get cheap resources to make your manufacturing process easier, right? there. This is why uh, Lenin famously says uh, imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. It's the moment when uh, a nation is is compelled to uh, expand into in these political ways. Um, and that creates all kinds of international exploitation and, you know, every, every poor country that you can think of, uh, Haiti, Venezuela, et cetera, all of them, um, they're all under the thumb of exactly this process. 
it's also probably worth pointing out here too the the other reason that we want to care especially within this exact situation that you know we're talking about right here is that um through this type of analysis you can see that capitalism is okay it is big it is ginormous it is you know like a a worldwide endeavor um it's also something that like you said dean it's like constantly growing and getting bigger and it's also i think it's good to say too that it's like flexible right like if you're not making money in one way you just kind of figure a way to to pivot your whole situation and you make money in a different way and I think the flexibility of capitalism is actually really important um, to the understanding of it because, um, well, I mean, for a few reasons. Um, first, like, y- you know, you and your community sharing with one another or, um, uh, you know, you're in, or you and your community um, comporting yourselves differently in the world to think about money differently or whatever, right? It, fine capitalism will find a different way to make money off of you like you'll right. still go to work somewhere and it'll still extract all of the labor it needs from you and you'll still you know go to the grocery store and buy things like whether or not you know you might have this sort of, sort of different radical take on uh on how you feel about money and jesus and all this kind of stuff but capitalism will just find different ways to profit from you and your community and uh yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not something that you, you can't just challenge capitalism by like in a, in a small way. Right. It takes um, mm-hmm. huge interventions to break these types of systems. Yeah, there are no isolated islands in capitalism. Right. All right. That's enough of that. Uh, let's turn to uh, the labor power side. and I can finally um, stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, well, let's talk about labor and labor power. Um <laughs> Okay, this is a little I don't have any good and fun stories that I've made up to, to illustrate this whole thing. But I'll just kind of tell you um, maybe a little bit about like what's going on with the labor side of things. So like Dean said, right, you know, you're a capitalist, you're buying people's labor, you're buying their labor power, you're paying them for not their power, but their time. And um, isn't that all very interesting? So Marxism and like a lot of other leftist philosophical outlooks consider labor as something that's just really important, right? It's like the cent- it's central to understanding all society. Um, and-, and Marx does it in this particular way that I think is, you know, better than other people, but whatever. So anyways, how work gets done, how a worker's time is divided up, how they get paid, etc. All of these things are necessary for understanding the overall shape of a society. Um, you know, you want to know what a society looks like. You have to know how work gets done first. That's step one. Um, so in Capital, Marx talks about this in sort of an abstract sense in a, in a big macroeconomic term, um, which he just calls labor power. So labor power, um, this is a quote from Marx. Labor power, however, becomes a reality only by its exercise. It sets itself in action only by working, but thereby a definite quantity of human muscle, nerve and brain. Um so that's what labor power is, right? It's like it's uh, the the inaction of people in um, situations of production. Um, Marx talks about it in Capital in this kind of very abstract way. And, and to me uh, personally, uh, I mean, it's fine that he's done this and it's, it is helpful for like the under, like a, an understanding of Marxism. But I think that um, what makes labor and like labor power make sense to me is understanding the political texture it has to it. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just like uh, it's like how many coats am I going to make? Which is it's great. <laughs> you got to know about economics, I suppose. But like the the political part is, I guess, where uh, to me to me the rubber hits the road. So, um, for example, um, in the Communist Manifesto, 
of all places. Um, Marx writes um, this about labor. He says the bourgeoisie, that's the ruling class, cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relation of society. So this is an important observation from Marx in the Communist Manifesto because, um, listen, you want, uh, like I said, you want to know what your society looks like. You need to look at like the way that labor is done. But this is tricky because um, the way that labor gets done, the instruments of labor, the means of production are constantly being revolutionized by the capitalist class to, you know, um, become more flexible in production or to, to churn out more commodities in a shorter amount of time with different amounts of labor power or, you know, um, trying to universalize the the uh, a machine to the human body, all, all of these things, right? These are really important things for labor. So I guess generally labor is how things get done in society. But Marx's, Marx's analysis is helpful because it helps us understand like who's benefiting the most and who's benefiting the least, right? Um, the, the capitalist class by revolutionizing the instruments of production is always going to be the one benefiting the most because they're going to be finding ways to uh, use that big labor power and extract as much of it as possible from people in um, manageable amounts of time so they don't have to pay people too much. Um, or, you know, they'll, they'll reduce wages for different amounts of uh, specialized labor and so on. Um, so what labor looks like is really important. But what's crucial for Marx is that the organization of labor, that is, you know, the organization of workers and people who don't own the means of production and only have their labor to sell and people who do own the means of production, the bourgeoisie, um, that organization of labor breeds certain types of class antagonisms. And this is this is where it gets exciting to me and to everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Dean got the short uh, drew the short straw here having to talk about like factories and stuff. And I'm going to talk about class antagonism. Um <laughs> Yeah, so class antagonism or class warfare is the way Marx and Marxists talk about the violence inherent in political economy and how like these two groups of people are always trying to kind of get one over on the other. But mostly, you know, the people who own the means of production are the ones who are, are going to be uh, winning in the end, um, at least for now. Um, yeah, in mm -hmm. another one of Marx's writings called The German Ideology, uh, he Marx does some like anthropological work and talks about um, you know, what class antagonism and labor looked like in feudal societies and in like these sort of different historical epochs. Um, and uh, I'm always like suspect of that part of Marx because like so many more anthropological and sociological studies have been done since and like feudal society is way more complicated than um, than Marx parses out. Um, been reading a lot about um, sort of the enclosure of the commons and this transition from feudal to more industrialized capitalism. And uh, boy, is it very complicated and interesting. <laughs> All that to say, though, <laughs> uh, in capitalism, like ca class struggle is basically like the ongoing war between those who own the means of production and those who don't. Right. That's class struggle. Um, it's uh, class struggle is um, it's it's your boss making sure that you um, you clock in and out on time, that you don't clock in early and that you're always working when you're at work and you're never slacking off or whatever. Right. Class struggle is um, you and your uh, friends, your coworkers at work, talking together, like in the back in hushed tones, trying to figure out how you're gonna like stretch your paycheck to to the next week, or or how you could you could uh, ask your boss for more sick time or something, right? This is what class struggle looks like on the ground. Um, it also looks like way bigger too, right? At the level of um, legislation, where um, 
you know, like huge corporations, like especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Big corporations will end up getting millions, uh, if not more, from the government, whereas uh, actual workers will get nearly nothing, right? This is class struggle because the capitalist class, uh, the bourgeoisie, they have all kinds of sway over legislators and whatnot, right? They have all the power in the situation. Um, so based on these analyses of labor, like what it is, how it works, what it looks like, and class struggle, Marx comes up with a big theory of revolution where necessarily these antagonisms of capitalism will like resolve into socialism, into like a, an uprising. And this is, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't, but uh, just the same class struggle is playing out regardless of, of some kind of grand proletarian revolution. And, uh, you know, regardless of that, I think um, that class struggle is still happening is is proof that Marx is still helpful for understanding um, these like larger, like the ways that capitalism um, creates them and like what workers can do to kind of like stop them. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, we can talk about revolution maybe more in a minute or or not. I don't know. But all of this is helpful for Christians, because like if you're interested in the least of these, if you're interested in people who are. Um, I mean, like we've been saying this entire time, um, who are like low wage workers or people who are just like seem like they will spend their entire life in poverty. These are really important questions because like the reason they're in poverty is because of the the particular organization of labor and um, also, you know, all kinds of other um, factors too, like white supremacy and um, heteronormativity and patriarchy and these kind of intersecting things. Right. These are all important. But like. If you're not kind of um, if you're not willing to get into the trenches here and, and think about the ways that these like people's lives are are influenced materially by labor and um, other structures, like what are you even doing? So right, if you care about the least of these, if you if you care about not worshiping mammon, like labor is exactly what you should be thinking about, right? Like how can you get you know not even just in sort of a crass way of like you know we gotta repossess. Uh, or appropriate Jeff Bezos's money, right? But like in the sort of like more more Christian way too, right? Like how could you how could you save the the soul of your boss by like making them pay their workers more? Um, <laughs> how could you persuade Jeff Bezos to worship Mammon less, you know, by nationalizing Amazon um, or whatever? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. So like, if you're a Christian and you care about poor people, then like God, get with it, like live in a community with other people, share with people. These are all very good, but like show up on a picket line, um, advocate for, um, you know, higher pay, advocate for healthcare, advocate for like d smashing the stupid system that keeps so many people in poverty and like will inevitably end up killing them early because, um, you know, it's just the way that it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like something we don't have time to get into here, but uh, it's something worth continuing to think about. Um, capitalism requires that some people are poor, right? It, it, Necessarily it needs, so, yes. Exactly. It needs some people to be unemployed. It needs uh, certain rents to go up and down. All these kinds of bizarre things have to be present. Uh, the myth that capitalism could ever deliver equality is fundamentally flawed because if it did, it, it would have big problems. It would have a crisis if there was equality. Um, and uh, just to maybe give one example, right? Um, unemployment. Uh, economists, even capitalist economists, they, they agree and disagree on what level of unemployment is necessary um, to have a, a sort of healthy, flourishing society. 
the big irony here is it can never be zero. <laughs> it always mm-hmm. has to be, you know, whether it's between three or seven or whatever, how much the system can really actually uh, contain. You know, economists disagree about that, uh, but they don't disagree that you need to have some unemployment. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. One is because you've always got to have a, a labor market that's that's desperate to work. People have to be able to sell their labor um, for capitalists to buy it. Uh, another is a, a labor movement will get too big if people aren't threatened uh, with losing their job, right? Like um, if you didn't have to worry about getting fired, then you probably wouldn't take the shit from your boss that you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so unemployment is a threat that the ruling class does use against the, the working class. Um, but it's also a necessary feature of just how capital needs to reproduce itself. So, um, again, there's tons and tons of ways that you could look at this. You could look at it in terms of housing. Um, you can look at it in terms of other ways that people are poor. The point being, uh, the, these are some very, very basic springboards from which you can start thinking about why are people poor, not just that people are poor. Um, right which is a big deal for Christians. It should be. <laughs> well, let's uh we're we're kind of getting over here um but I think it's important to at least end on the note of what you can do uh and that's organizing. Um but organizing is also a phrase that just gets tossed around and might not mean that much. So what does Marxism do for you? I think maybe putting together what Matt and I have said here, right? You have on the one hand, there's a, a capital side of this equation. On the other, there's a labor side of this equation. Um, the capital side is clearly the the most violent side. I think you can say they've they've got all the power and the money and the means, etc. Um, but the labor side actually has a lot more potential power inside of it from a Marxist analysis because it is. Uh, <laughs> The labor is the only commodity that can decide not to show up. Um, that's one way of putting it, right? If there are crises at the in the chain of, of capital, um, it's one that can voluntarily quit. Uh, workers, however, usually don't know that, right? Or or they have legitimate fears that if they don't show up, um, they or or if they cause trouble, they'll be out of a job, and then they'll have a harder time selling their labor to a new buyer if they have like a bad reputation, right? So. Um, there's all these reasons that people don't understand that actually there's loads and loads and loads of critical power tied to just whether or not they go to work. Um, unions are supposed to represent the working class and their interests. Sometimes they do it better than others. Uh, and actions like strikes are supposed to teach people that they do have power, even if the capitalist class has a ton of it too, right? So I, I think that's just one way that Marxism can help us figure out what to do. It's not just uh, go to church, although, yeah, like go to church for sure. You should be a good person. Um, <clears throat> you know, you should be spiritually fed as you're doing all this organizing work, etc. Um, and Christianity even offers some, I, I think, genuinely uh, unique contributions to political struggle. Uh, it makes you a good comrade, hopefully, right? Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Marxism and and asking the labor question in this way allows you to at least find out uh, what you should do beyond just saying uh, people should be a good person, which is what most of this uh, kind of allegedly radical uh, Christian rhetoric usually amounts to. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no reason that Christians can't get down with this whole thing, right? <laughs> like, historically, as our podcast is a testament to, Christians have been at the forefront of this kind of organizing. Uh, they still are. Um, I got an email from my pastor just today about showing up to a strike on Wednesday. <laughs> so that's pretty wild. That's great. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I know. Like, I, all I'm trying to say, I, I mean, I'm not trying to tell you about how good my pastor is because I don't really care that much about that. But 
um, just saying that like people are still invested in these types of struggles Christians are. And like, you know, um, I think it's good to uh, give ourselves permission as Christians to like be agitators in our community to like show up for these types of things because um, yeah, I mean, like we've discussed, right? Like um, labor is the only commodity that can decide not to show up that this is the one, this is the place that like, if you want to, fight back against every bad thing in society. This is one place you can do it where you can really put pressure on people. Um, and that's really important. So, yeah, I mean, like the, the least of these aren't just just passive recipients of charity or people who had bad luck or whatever, but they're a part of a class of people that hasn't yet found a way to understand and exercise their power. But um, organizing labor and organizing, I think, a lot of other things too, like tenants and things like that. Um, is a really good way to start expressing that power and exploring like what the extents of it are, right? Like um, labor and like organized labor in the United States is, um, has been the decline for a really long time and it's only now kind of starting to pick up again. But I think that the more people that get involved and the more that we really press companies and um, our local governments and our um, federal government to like actually do something through direct action, like striking uh, the more results we'll see and the more power we find that we actually have in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been ragging on Christians and maybe leaning into the Marxism side of this, but I think it's maybe just important to emphasize at the end here that there are Christian reasons to recognize that this is where the power lies in society, right? Um, Christianity should shape you in particular ways, and it should make you want a, a world that is just and kind and, um, you know, one where people don't have to go needlessly hungry and starve and all that kind of thing. But if that's truly how you feel, if you really think that Jesus cares about social justice in a meaningful sense, uh, then that means figuring out where the levers of power are. And they are not uh, in Congress, by and large, right? They're not among legislators. Uh, they're also not just in, in church um, or in your, your local community. Again, all those things are, are other political pressure points, but they're not primary. Um, I've been talking about David Harvey a bunch, but someone else I would mention here is actually Boots Riley, who is probably the reason that I'm a communist. Um, if you don't know who he is, he is a rapper and a filmmaker and just an all around cool guy. Um, but he uh, he gives a lot of interviews and you should look them up. One thing that he constantly sort of uh, says in, in every context is that uh, demonstrations are named that way because they are a demonstration of, of power. If all these people who are marching decide not to go to work tomorrow, you're going to have a big problem on your hands. That's why they're named as such. Uh, and Boots Riley is always saying, uh, if you think there's a problem in society, um, the one thing you can do to really threaten somebody is say, we're not going to go to work. Um, for instance, he, he gives a lot of examples of like when Black Lives Matter people are protesting, uh, when that movement is protesting, obviously unjust verdicts uh, and, you know, trying to, to build real power. Um, Boots Riley always says, well, if those movements, which are great and, and important and good, were accompanied by a militant uh, labor class that would also add to that kind of critical mass, uh, the threat that they wouldn't go to work. Well, you'd probably have a very different uh, <laughs> um, constellation of power <laughs> in uh, society, right? It's not to say that racism will be solved by any stretch. That's not true and not what Boots Riley is saying either. Um, but uh, you would be exercising a lever of power that is ultimately even more dangerous, I think, than you know, burning a cop car as important and cathartic as that might be. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not, not trying to cast aspersions on that, whatever, do what you got to do. But um, all that to say, 
the activist component of this that I think Christians really have to uh, wrestle with is that labor is where the power is in a capitalist society. And if Christians want um, want capitalism to be uh, tamed or, or whatever, changed, abolished, however you want to put it, if they want to be anti-capitalists, uh, they have to figure out how that works. Yeah, I think that's right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, we've also got some stuff on our Redbubble store. You can buy t-shirts or stickers, or you could not, and that's fine too. It's just whatever, you know? It's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, when we get our Bible factory, though, you're going to have to buy some of those. That's true. And we do get the Bible factory. We're going to need you all to kind of come out for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, our uh, intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next time, and we'll talk about uh, linen and coats. Oh, probably not, but there's always, there's always the possibility. come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night.